Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about the bad boy of cinema himself, Lars von Trier. That's right, the prankster, the edge lord. That's kind of how he's perceived a little bit. The shit it? disturber. Yeah, and I think that perception kind of gets in the way of appreciation of his work a little mm-hmm. bit. It certainly has for me at times in the past because he deals in oftentimes difficult and transgressive subject matter and he takes you to emotional extremes you know a movie like antichrist doesn't always feel like the safest place to be because he has that kind of trickster reputation wouldn't you want to go towards that though because you like those kind of provocations i i think i do i do i think over the years i've had to learn to sort of trust lars von trier Mm. all Uh, he wants is a reaction out of you whether it be good or bad that's all he cares about is what people often say and sometimes he'll even say that about himself as well i mean i'm sure that's true he definitely does have like a prankster side to him he certainly has a sense of humor oftentimes a very like bitter and acidic one you know oftentimes the one that like is really disorienting and upsetting like in the house that jack built for instance but i do think like just watching some of his movies again this week there's like a great moral seriousness in them. And I also think there's like a consistent project happening in those movies. Like in a lot of them, you know, it's it's not all it's not all his movies are exactly the same, but like he's a, someone who believes in evil as like a force that like manifests and like is kind of always present. It's always simmering underneath and just the right circumstances can allow it to unleash and places and people you wouldn't expect it and if Lars von trier heard that he'd go yeah sure whatever you say because i actually have his book I you're holding up your hand lars, as if you have a book in it <laughs> yeah lars von trier on, uh, this is a very von, von trier, trier on trier or is it trier on trier you no know, it's like trier on von trier like the joke ah. being that like it's the man commenting on the public you know image that he puts out there because the most famous fact is the von he just added it as a pretentious gesture when he was in university right just to be like, oh, I want to make myself feel more important by putting this Von Trier there. And that's the kind of balancing act that you have to kind of, you know, think about when you watch his films that he's aware of what he's doing. At the same time, he does have a big ego. And so, like, both of those things are in constant combat with each other. The idea of, like, oh, he knows that what he's doing is pretentious. But he likes doing pretentious things. And if he's putting it out there, isn't it just pretentious, even though there is some kind of acknowledgement of that? What's your relationship with Lars von Trier? I never really had any interest in his movies when they were coming out, like Dogville, Breaking the Waves. Uh, that would have been a little bit before my time. But What was the first one you saw? Probably Europa. And I watched it when I was working at Eyesore Cinema, and I went, oh, wow, this I can get behind. This kind of very, you know, maximalist, control, expressionist, like special effects through the wazoo, which he would then completely abandon. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, you must have been disappointed by the ones that came after. After those, like, three (laughs) films, Element of Crime, Epidemic, and Europa. Mm -hmm. But, you know, reading about him and researching him for this podcast, I realized that the reason that, you know, all that stuff that kind of he did afterwards, the Dogma 95, which I should point out, he never made a Dogma 95 movie. Really? Now, did did any of his movies, though, like those movies were like numbered. The Idiots was Mm -hmm. supposedly a Dogma 95 film. I think there's some music in The Idiots at the end, which breaks one of the Dogma 95 rules. Every single one of them broke the rule. Yeah, all of them. And so... What is Dogma 95 for uh, people who don't don't know? too lost in the weeds on that, okay. but it was a bunch of rules that Lars von Trier, Thomas Vinterberg, and there was another guy that signed on to it as well. And then their little groupie, Harmony Corrine, got in on it too. Which was like, we want to kind of revitalize film in the same way that the French New Wave did in the 60s, and to do that we need an immediacy to the way that movies are made. They talked about a vow of chastity. Yes. It was like, no music, no no non-diegetic music, no artificial lighting, yeah. no handheld camera. You can't bring a prop to set the props need to be there when you get there and you have to also shoot on 35 millimeter film Mm -hmm. that's something that i find interesting about like all of his films around the europa period is that he was really experimenting something like breaking the waves is shot on 35 was transferred to video and then that video was transferred to 35 which is why it looks as odd as it does Mm -hmm. and so like those kind of visual experiments I i got really interested in it and what's most important about for me to understand like stuff like the idiots, which usually I'd be like, no, no, thank you, is that hearing him talk about it, he is so 
controlling with the movies that he made and that reaches its kind of limit with Europa that when he goes handheld it's to not impose any rules when shooting so then in post he can form the thing jump cuts whatever he needs and then have even more control over it than he would do if he was trying to get something very specific on set and failing instead he can you know just build something anew with the footage that he shoots in that kind of handheld style so certainly he was one of the directors in the 1990s who became like i associate with that decade as somebody who like emerged onto the festival scene and was like a critical darling so to the extent that i'm talking about backlash to him it was a minor backlash mm-hmm. but i remember like when i was growing up or, you know, discovering, you know, serious art movies, there was always a sort of simmer in some of the critical reaction to his movies. People like Jonathan Rosenbaum, for example, treating him with a certain amount of distrust, like the Dogma 95 manifesto that he and those other filmmakers did. You know, there was, in some circles, there was a sort of like, oh, this is a carnival barker. This is a publicity gimmick. Yeah. Unlike all those other movements, which, <laughs> yeah. which are were 100% real. Completely organic and were not at all conceived as publicity gimmicks. Well, Von Trier, throughout his career is always trying to present limitations on himself to kind of foster, I guess, creativity. And he says that a lot of it is rooted that when he was a kid, he had parents that would let him do whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. And that later on in life, he realized created a need to go against anything anyone demanded of him, but also to impose some kind of limitations so you can work towards something. Because when you can do whatever you want, it's absolutely... Well, great art thrives with limitations, limitations. so they say, so so the received wisdom is. This has obviously been one of the themes of his movies with like the five obstructions, where the very thesis of it is like, if you have a true artist and you keep imposing limitations on them, somehow art will find a way. Mm -hmm. And that it may not be exactly what you were planning on, but by doing that, it becomes that much more interesting. So you watch Breaking the Waves, probably his breakout film in terms of like the art house circuit. Yeah, that was one that I would hear Siskel and Ebert rave about and put on their top 10 lists. And yeah, it had a kind of mainstream art house reputation that the most foreign films didn't have. The plot of Breaking the Waves, if you haven't seen it, Emily Watson stars as a Scottish girl in a remote town who lives a very repressive Calvinist upbringing. She's also had mental health issues throughout her life, has been, I think, the suggestion is she's been institutionalized in the past. She has a direct relationship to God, she thinks, where there are many scenes in the movie where she's talking to God and talking back to herself as if he's talking through her. You know, she thinks she's having conversations with him. She falls in love with a character named Jan, played by Stellan Skarsgård, who's a worker at a nearby oil rig. He's not a churchgoer, so this brings some tension between her and her ultra-religious community. She wants to please him. There's a harrowing scene at their wedding where she loses her virginity to him in the bathroom during the wedding, and she's she's very eager to do it. It's an incredibly unromantic moment. In fact, Jan says, do you want to do it in some place more romantic? And what the movie builds to is that her husband gets injured, and she decides to... Well, how is it well, phrased exactly in the film? Well, he well he's injured. Like he's he can no longer have sex, mm-hmm. and he basically says, "I would like you to you know take on a lover and have sex with him and describe it to me, and maybe I can I can live through you." And she really takes to this. She first you know propositions the doctor, and he says absolutely not. And so then she increasingly propositions strangers, you know, just just random people, and these encounters get more and more degrading and more and more violent the doctor becomes concerned that this is some sort of again she's somebody who's suffered mental health issues in the past and and increasingly thinks that you know her proximity to him is triggering or setting off something potentially very dangerous meanwhile the people in the church community she becomes increasingly ostracized by them and i don't have like a a clean analysis of this movie yeah what is this movie about at the end spoiler alert for breaking the waves well you know i always actually kind of remembered this movie with a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth Mm -hmm. and i don't have that i like watching it again i was actually very moved by it because i think you know you've ultimately got this this woman who a pure innocent well 
Well, that's what she's she's I, she's human. Yes, I don't know what because Von Trier said that this was inspired by a book that he read as a child of like a like the a goody two shoes who's always good getting into rough situations. At the end, she's like, oh, but at least I'm still alive or something like that. Well, at the end, without spoiling it too much, there is a sort of moment of transcendence. There uh, is. It's ambiguous. Well, it's uh, it's very odd because it seems to imply that well. She died, and through that, a miracle can happen. Yeah, or like there was a sort of martyr mm-hmm. thing going on. Von Trier is a huge fan of Dreyer, to the point that he made one of his unmade scripts, Medea, as a TV movie. But I think watching this movie within the context of this week and watching some of the other ones, like the the, the Von Trier movies, to use a corny phrase, it's about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. about being, you have to be at home in ambiguity, and you have to be comfortable in a space where like, you know, evil and good are are constantly interacting and it's hard to tell one from the other sometimes. You know, this character who, again, is a sort of innocent character, a human character, certainly a character with flaws, but, you know, basically an innocent you know, she's in one incredibly repressive patriarchal structure and she's hemmed in by it. And then there's this this Jan character who does lead her on this road of, well, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity about the extent to which she is a sort of willing participant in this. She's, yeah, that she, she's doing things that she could never do before and she, yeah. using it as an expression of, you know, her love for her husband, that she can explore these things that have always been, you know, banned. And Breaking the Waves is not one of my favorite Lars von Trier films. Out of all the ones that like when you talk about him as a filmmaker, there's often a knee jerk reaction that f- people almost feel betrayed by him. You'll hear a lot of like vitriol. So I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But like, what do you? What do you attribute this to? Well, it's the fact that like his movies are on some levels miserable by the end of them. Like think of something like Dancer in the Dark. I don't know if you've ever seen I that have one. Seen it, yeah. But that also ends in that kind of like gut punch. Like he's looking to engineer that reaction in an audience, sometimes leading them down one path just to let them wallow in the muck later on. Well, speaking for myself, the times when I felt distrustful of Lars von Trier, or I, f- I mean, betrayed is a big word, mm-hmm. but the times when I, f- I felt- <laughs> How dare you, <laughs> Mr. Von Trier? Yeah, yes, in this movie that I volunteered to see myself that <laughs> yeah. no one made me see. The times when I felt distrustful or skeptical of him, it's like you go into the movie and you kind of like, you're not quite sure what you're signing up for by feeling certain things, mm. if, if that makes sense. Like, in Breaking the Waves, when she's making the case for her own sort of, like, sexual liberation that is also sort of entirely at the service of this man, and then meanwhile, she's ostracized by the community, which you, I think you are supposed to think is wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe the sour taste that I had in my mouth about this movie for years was a sort of feeling of, okay, what am I actually supposed to feel about this situation? Mm-hmm. Is it right that she's doing this? It's probably ridiculous that I felt that way for so long because the movie doesn't, I think purposely doesn't have an answer to that question. I think that the reason that I usually kind of bounce off breaking the waves is the idea of like, well, this is where we're going. <laughs> we're going to this kind of like miserable end finale, even though like Will said, you could see some moment of transcendence in those final moments. But you you feel it's just following somebody on a path of degradation mm-hmm. and you kind yeah. of you kind of see where it's going. Yep, exactly. And that's why I don't it's not uh-huh. one that I watch that often, even though of wow. course I very dutifully put that criterion on my Blu-ray shelf, took it off, sold it to somebody else, and I'm like, I'm good. I think for me it's the Emily Watson performance yeah. that kind of keeps you going with it because because it is ambiguous throughout the extent to which she's she's there. And I mean she's a sweet character. She's She's a likable character. You have empathy for her. And she does a good job communicating that as well as just this feeling that maybe maybe she has no idea what she's doing. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be in for two and a half hours. The thing that I love about Von Trier are his playful experimentation with sin form and his sense of humor, which we discussed a little bit before. I think he's a very funny guy, mm-hmm. even when it gets like very dark. The last film that he made... The House the Jack Belt. It's so funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though that it's showing you really gross stuff. And I can understand why people react to it like, well, that's just edgelord stuff. Like, well, l- yeah. let me vomit in my hand and show it to you. It's like, ha, 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 look at that. But I, I also think 
like I've come to believe that that leavens like it's an important ingredient. I yes. mean, the movie. If it was pure misery, then it would be unwatchable. And as with David Lynch or anyone, anyone, any serious filmmaker who deals in you know the dark and the transgressive and 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 believes in evil, like there's an understanding that it's not just that. Mm-hmm. Like there are moments of levity. If you watch his early films, he's a guy that is just it, it, just obsessed with experimentation and visual beauty to the loss of anything else. Like you watch the first film element of crime. You're like, well, how did they get this shot? I can't wait to see where this camera move is going, but it's like a hollow experience at the end of the day because there's nothing there. And to find that kind of, you know, meaning he did have to go to basically that handheld inspired by, and he said this himself, homicide life on the streets (laughs) that he watched that show or someone told him to watch it. He's like, wow, you can break all these filmmaking rules. And he ended up making a show called the kingdom. And he ended up shooting it like homicide life on the streets. And then he just, never wanted to go back to the other kind of style that he had before beyond little interludes oftentimes like very stylized like it happened to breaking the waves like the chapter marks right throughout or which are these moments of sort of catharsis you know that yeah they are very like sharp and and beautiful like special effects shots with moments of like blaring american pop music and, and he does it again it. in like melancholia later on mm-hmm. and so like I like that experimentation, the sense of humor and the darkness as well. But breaking the waves, I've always found, you know, when I watched it, that feels like, oh yeah, that would be the art house like breakthrough. There's almost not enough experimentation okay. for me. And it's like later on, but you know, even something like Dogville, I find is a very good partner to breaking the waves when you're talking about degradation of a main character. By the way, Dogville, which I watched again this week for the first time in years, I watched the restoration that's on Mubi and that actually I think looks beautiful. Hmm. I I was I was surprised because seeing this movie like kind of close to when it came out I remember like you it, it was it's shot in this like very harsh digital that I think I and most people weren't really used to seeing as well as the whole the whole gimmick of having it shot like our town in this set where the set is just like labeled on the ground, but the houses aren't haven't been built. So they're all just on one big soundstage. Yeah, it, 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 for anybody who hasn't seen kind of what Dogville looks like, it's just imagine a set for a theatrical play. There are some kind of props on the set, but it's all marked off in chalk. And the gimmick is you can always see through the depths of the town. So like someone will be having a conversation at the front, but because there's no walls, you can see what's happening in the dark far background. And so Ben Gazzara and Lauren Bacall and all these people are just like so much of the acting that they're doing is just sweeping the floor Mm -hmm. in the background. I mean, it's a pretty radical like experiment to do with with actors. And especially that you have a recognizable star like Nicole Kidman in the main role Mm -hmm. interacting with all these like old Hollywood types and the new Hollywood people. Look, it's the vision himself star in the film that's right yeah the plot of dogville is that there's a town called dogville where it's like any small town it takes place in old america if you will and that M- much like you know the set itself the setting is just sort of like an almost like idealized mm. or or a platonic idea of like old american small town and paul bettany is an artist who doesn't really do much art in this town thinks he's better than everybody and when nicole kidman a woman on the run shows up in the small town they're not sure what she did they hide her away for a while but decide hey you know what let's give her two weeks see what kind of person she is and crew like Paul Bettany, who's the son of, you know, the town elder, like he kind of sees himself as the spiritual and intellectual and moral center of the town. Mm-hmm. He's the town leader. And basically what he is, is like the white liberal. Yeah. And what happens? Do all these people who consider themselves good and moral start abusing Nicole Kidman because she allows them within this situation trying to be a good person that, you know, it can, can we say a slippery slope, if you will? Does she go from volunteer to slave mm-hmm. very quickly? Does it does it become coercion very quickly? Yes. And, and does she eventually abuse them? I mean, I remember when this movie premiered at Cannes and then was released theatrically. I mean, it was very divisive at the time. And 
like it came announced as this is the first in von trier's america trilogy <laughs> yes and then coming in the context of like you know premiering at con the month after the iraq war started a year and a half after 9 11 it was like this was a very this was a very heated moment for like a european auteur to be making the i'm gonna make a movie about how america is bad trier said that he does these trilogies like the europa trilogy or the america trilogy because if you have one good film the people are forced to like buy the other two even if they're bad so he can sell them off like a pack of socks this is the side of him that i've i've come to appreciate Mm -hmm. over the years the showman side i i do genuinely like it now and so dogville i mean if we're talking about degradation it's just like the one step (laughs) above breaking the waves well yeah i mean i saw i remember when this movie came out and, and seeing ebert and roper's like very negative review of it and the, the the alleged anti-Americanness of the movie, which was like... Wait, wait the critics were reacting to it at that time, yeah, post oh, 9-11? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like... <laughs> you remember Dogville ends with like a montage of scenes of American poverty with David Bowie's young America playing. And I remember Roper in particular took offense to that. Like they have these problems in every country. What, what, what's with this? Like there was, there was, there was a, even among liberal critics, there was like a strong kind of reactionary backlash to this movie. And I, I think it made people, certain people particularly insane because the movie is like allegorical. It's not directly about it. Like it's not directly about American slavery. Yeah, well, or, you'd have to, see Manderley well yeah film which is very directly about it Mm -hmm. but it what it's suggesting is that there's a sort of and and I don't think this is even a uniquely American phenomenon although maybe maybe he's saying it is Mm -hmm. but like there is a propensity in small towns even towns full of nice people not small towns communities groups of people one thing can go one way and the other thing can go that way then eventually human nature which is like destructive well human nature is human and Mm. it can be you know harnessed in one direction but then it can also be very very easily harnessed in the direction of evil Mm. and it's a scary thought to have i mean it could easily be a movie about you know germany in the interwar period or Mm -hmm. or any other place where evil but america on the world stage is universal so that's why you would put it in that period so there isn't that disconnect yeah absolutely and i think that the movie is in my personal opinion way too goddamn long but isn't it a perfect theatrical presentation that when you go see a play those are usually about three hours long that's true yeah absolutely so that's exactly the kind of vibe that it is but every time i watch it i'm looking at my watch i'm like how much more abuse does nicole kidman (laughs) have to go through and i'm like there's an hour left i thought we had rock bottom what are the ones that you like a lot because i know that you're i know that you collect the films Mm -hmm. i know that you're a fan what are the ones that like if you were to pick one off the shelf so i love all of his early films even though that I don't react emotionally to them. I really like Antichrist, Melancholia, Nymphomaniac, and The House That Jack Built. Let's talk about Antichrist, because that was... I didn't revisit it for this podcast, Mm -hmm. but, I mean, that was such a, like atom bomb that dropped on the Cannes Film Festival that year. I don't even remember the reaction to it. I Mostly it's like Melancholia and his famous Cannes presser. That... Well, of course, yeah. But so, but like Antichrist, like the Cannes Film Festival, the people who go see movies there are a bunch of weenies. And it's always amazing. There's always rich weenies. Rich weenies. And there's one movie every year where it's like, oh, oh my God. There were a hundred walkouts and people were literally killing themselves in the aisle because they couldn't <laughs> take it. And I remember at the press conference. And a 15 con- minute standing ovation yeah. for Kevin Smith's clerks too. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that at the press conference conference for antichrist the first question there was such hostility the first question was you've come to this movie like explain this movie you have to explain this movie and von trier said words to the effect of i don't feel i have to explain it you're my guest here and i'm the greatest filmmaker in the world he actually said that <laughs> that rules yeah. i love that good, good for him for saying that maybe not good for him for saying certain things he said at the melancholia press conference mm-hmm. well you know when you talk about von trier it should also be noted that he is very upfront with that he has crippling ocd and other kinds of psychological stuff that he struggles with and that he sees therapists a lot about. Like, he won't fly anywhere because he's terrified of flying. That was something that came up when Dogma came out. Like, he's never even been to America. What does he know? Which is like, give me a break. You know, yeah, come on. You know the (laughs) universal appearance of America? You you fuckers haven't been to North Korea and you have opinions about that place, so (laughs) come on. I'm glad you're raking Roper over the coals. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Roper, I would love to be your friend. <laughs> really? If he showed up, he's like, well, let's have supper every yeah, week. I would say, yeah, let's get a drink, buddy. Are you a subscriber to the Roper app? 
Yeah, well, I was. I don't, I don't think it works anymore. <laughs> Rest in peace, Richard Roper app. And so, like, Antichrist, I think... I, I don't know why this one, because it is filled with kind of like misery and torture, but it's so elevated. Well, certain of the images, yes. the scene with the scissors, for instance, mm-hmm. or the scene with the big rock and a certain a certain genital area. Here's the thing is that like Von Trier, I think he's talked about it, that he has kind of an aversion to genre. That was actually one of the rules of Dogma 95 mm-hmm. is like, you cannot make a genre film, to which I say, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? Is that... I, Antichrist is basically like an Italian exploitation movie. <laughs> That's funny. It's true. Like, just think about when people think about that movie, they're, the images are so kind of expressionist in your face. Now, that is a technically ugly looking film. Like, that digital video is like, ah! Except for the opening scene, which yep, is in that high, slow high contrast yep. black and white. Yeah, I mean, I well, when I saw it, I definitely, like... I don't know. I felt very disturbed and bothered by mm-hmm. it. I mean, certainly the opening scene where like the baby falls out the window is is horrible. But then it's so kind of heightened, though. Oh yeah, that it, it's even Which though it adds a, to the horror. Yeah, I think. Well, I see, that's the thing is that I'm like Von Trier. When you're trying to do something that's getting me into it, like breaking the waves, that's when I'm like, eh, no, not for me. But when it's so elevated and it is horrifying and it's operatic mm-hmm. and it's presentation of you know, I want to see those you know hardcore inserts in Antichrist. Go Oh, yeah. yeah, but then the rest of the movie where it's, you know, Charlotte Gainsbourg is the grieving mother and Willem Dafoe is her husband, who is also a psychiatrist, who basically sort of emo- deadens himself during this to what he thinks he's doing is taking care of his wife, mm-hmm. you know, turning on the psychiatrist brain, making her his subject and like the sort of evil that that brings out, that that dynamic brings out, as well as, I I mean, I'm sorry, I should see this movie again to remember this exactly, but does she not theorize later in the movie that all women are evil? I think something like that I think it was like, it was like, when that movie was originally pitched to the public, the idea was it's a vision of the Garden of Eden where it was Satan, not God. And so basically the suggestion is like, Eve is like the har- the harbinger of evil, mm. you know, rather than Oh my god, how could Von Trier make a movie like that? I'm not I'm not up it's on my biblical infect the teenagers of our day. And they're gonna go around thinking that women are evil and that they're the pure root of evil. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame that on Von Trier. <laughs> no, yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is that that movie, even though like I mean, that's a very easy way to interpret that film it's like yeah, but he's still he's he's like an edgelord throughout all of this well right? i mean so i think he uh, you, you say edgelord i mean i think he is he is serious provocateur he is a provocateur yeah. i mean because there's a bad faith to edgelord i mean manderley which is you know the cheap atlas shrug sequel to dogville <laughs> I mean, it looks basically the same to me. But no, but they recast everybody. I know, the whole cast is different, yeah. yeah. But, like, I mean, there, there are a lot of provocations in that movie, a lot of very ugly stuff in it. Not least the the suggestion in the movie that democracy is inherently flawed mm-hmm. and, and is unenforceable. I haven't seen Manderley, so I can't speak to it. Uh, but let's talk about Melancholia, which we both watched this week, and which I think is probably his best one. Oh, of all of his yeah, movies? Yeah, I, I actually do. I, I that was That's the one that moves me the most. So the first time I watched it, I was like, hey, yeah, Von Trier's doing his Rich thing. Rich people. It's a miserable movie. You don't like movies with rich people. Uh, I mean, if they ask me to care about them, no. (laughs) (laughs) Or spend too much time with them. But I think Melancholia is a great portrayal of depression and what it means to be depressed, especially when you're surrounded by all of this like stuff that people are telling you, well, you should be happy. This should be good. And it's like, I can't like... And it's so smart the way that it approaches it, where like it's kind of fun at the beginning. You sat, you feel something is off, and then you have this Kirsten Dunst character who's getting married, and her sister comes up to her and goes, "Hey, don't let this start again. Like this is something. This is a cycle that she goes through, and she can't escape these like waves of the depression that hits her. And you just follow that." pattern as also the world is going to end as her sister and her brother-in-law are you know extremely wealthy and they've created this wedding around her including the wedding planner played brilliantly i think by udo kier mm-hmm. who i mean I, i'd forgotten this it's so funny we're halfway through the wedding he's like she has ruined my wedding i would never even look at her and then every time you see him he's like put his hand over his face so he doesn't have to that's see really funny. Yeah, yeah really funny but yeah the kirsten dunce character is like yeah she has like these uh, high-powered sister and 
brother-in-law you know who it's more their wedding than hers at this point and then you, Do know, you know how much money i spent yeah. on this uh, uh Kiefer Sutherland, his only role in a von trier film yeah oh. got her divorced parents you know sniping at each other at the wedding you know like already kind of going off the rails the boss who she has by family connections is like promoting her in the middle of a wedding she doesn't even have control over her career and like i don't know you literally just got married this week mm-hmm. but i could imagine i mean i just know from experience being at anything like like this it's like at a certain point the thing the wedding can be a metaphor for just your life mm-hmm. where it's just like how did i get this huge infrastructure around me and like how can I get off the ride? Hmm. Well, thankfully, my wedding was not a giant classic wedding at I mean, a mansion. You're, you're still here. Yeah, you know? I'm still here. They Smile say, on they my say face. T- two days later, you know, they say weddings, marriages don't last. But, you know, here, <laughs> two days. Here we are. I'm like a pop star in the like mid 2000s. We've made it. We've made it all the way here. <laughs> but the thing about melancholy is the way that we're describing it, it makes it sound like, oh, it's this big wedding. But that's the magic of the movie is you got. 90 minutes after that wedding, oh, where yeah. it's just the wind down, but also the wind up to everybody dying, which the movie just shows you right at the beginning of like, listen, it's going to be the end of the world, these expressionist images, and then we're just going to kind of, how do people react in this situation as this thing is happening? No one kind of wants to admit it, but they all know that it's coming, that I think it's like a, another planetoid is going to crash. collapse. It, yeah. Or, it, or, or, crash. Or, or, crash into the into Earth. And yeah, I also think in this movie, there's no kind of one way to look at that either. Like, I think in a way you could almost regard the end of the earth as like liberating in this movie. Well, like the Kirsten Dunst character is the one who, as everything is falling apart because the second section of the movie focuses on her sister, her depression allows her to have almost a calm and acceptance of what's happening, mm-hmm. that she's the one who's in control and is accepting, all right, this is happening. And she actually helps her nephew through it mm-hmm. and giving him some hope. She has a speech where she's like, we're alone in the world. We're the only people. Why does this matter? And to that, I go, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> There's no other life in the universe. Like You make your own moments where you're doing out. It doesn't have to be a big cosmic thing. Someone with depression doesn't matter. Doesn't help them. That's and that's what the movie is showing you. Absolutely. That no matter what you can say, when they're in those kind of states, there's almost nothing that. I mean, you can talk to them, you can interact with them, not get angry with them. But that's not where this movie is. You know, starting. It's starting at a place where. Kirsten Dunst has, this has happened to her over and over and over again, and her family has reacted like, ugh, why? But now the world is actually ending, and that kind of depression is what is allowing her to kind of move through it. At that famous, infamous Khan press conference where he compared himself to Hitler, and then... I think he said, I am a Nazi, I sympathize, Yeah, you know, jokingly, but, you know, rather rather disastrously. I mean, as as poorly as he expressed that i actually think that what he was sort of communicating was that he has evil within him Mm -hmm. which is like certainly a theme of the house that jack built and i think is a theme of most of these movies you know evil is all around us and we're all capable of it you see it in that last scene of nymphomaniac where the stellan skarsgård character yeah who's a sympathetic person he's been the nice guy trademark for the whole movie you know he he's capable of evil and what, great evil and he even says like but that story you told me and all the stuff that happened it's like i can do this right it's like no that's not you know what what's the point that you got out of the story i was telling that's Lars von Trier basically saying like you're you are drawing the wrong conclusions from my movies well i i just think that like the edgelord thing the provocateur thing the the truth that he wants you to wallow in in a lot of these movies and the tone with which he he tackles them sometimes that bitterly comic way you know juxtaposing with extreme cruelty and transgression i think his movies pose a genuine challenge like what he's saying about the evil all around us and all of our capacity for it is genuinely frightening and i think it like takes a certain amount of i don't want to overstate the the case but like artistic courage on his part to like (laughs) plumb those depths in the movies that the world can be very evil yeah that's true (laughs) what are you gonna do I mean, not a lot of movies really deal with that, though. No, they usually deal with redemption or, you know, getting better. And even the evil people, you bring them over to your side by the end of the movie. Yeah. And Von Trier is the opposite. It's like, oh, these good people you thought were good. No, no, no. They're bad by the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to do that in a way that, you know, is entertaining, uh, entertaining, engaging and at all watchable and actually makes you think it's a significant achievement. Well, I think the thing about Von Trier, right, is at the end of the day, he is a pop art 
filmmaker in the sense that like his films travel more mm-hmm. than other films that are like this really deals with the depth of evil mm-hmm. and it's like yeah but it's miserable to watch so you can only connect with a certain amount of people yeah and and, and, bo- and some and some movies you know like i, I don't know to, to use an extreme example of like the sort of like this is so fucked up movie that mm-hmm. it sometimes shares self shell space with but like a movie like august underground only has one yeah. one idea mm-hmm. and only has one feeling in it and these movies have a whole tapestry. It sounds like Von Trier is pretty much done with making movies, too. He's seriously sick, I understand. Yeah, I believe he has Parkinson's, he mm-hmm. says, which makes it very difficult to kind of, you know, do the work that he used to do. And he's getting on in his years as well. Yeah, no, I think it's tragic. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's a great loss for cinema to not have him. But he has a whole filmography that was constantly evolving, even though that some of the films that we talked about seems to be very similar subjects. But, I mean, I love the boss of it all, the comedy oh, that he yeah. made. very funny. I I think it's very funny. I was reading Reveal the Letterbox. People are like, oh, not a very laugh out loud movie. I was like, I was laughing out loud <laughs> yeah, throughout. Yeah, yeah. The a guy who, I mean, it's such a convoluted premise where an actor is hired by a guy who is actually the boss of the company, but he never admitted it to his employees <laughs> because he was embarrassed. But what we really learned is that because he wanted to control them all from behind the scenes and that actor ha- being forced to spend a week with these employees pretending to be this boss. <laughs> and they're just a, a real weird bunch of people. And that movie is another one of those experiments that you remember. He's like, "Oh, it's Automavision." Yeah, Automavision, which was a camera where it was it was supposedly him purposely giving up control of the compositions and editing strategies. Yes, well, not the editing strategies because what would happen was that when they would start a scene, they would just randomize where the camera would be positioned in the room, and then they would put the camera there and run the scene. And watching the movie, I realized, oh, okay, so they would do the scene from multiple different computer chosen angles, and then he would cut it together into what wherever he wanted. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting way to make a movie. Again, limitations that you present yourself and how do you work around them? All right. As per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Griselda and it goes, you got to love historic dramas. Do you love historic dramas? Will? I mean, when they're good sure <laughs> but it's not like a genre that you like go towards no no i, w- I wouldn't say that no because i know that someone like my brother like he loved big historical war movies even though it's like oh ridley scott has napoleon coming out i was like what has ridley scott done in the last 10 years that would make you think that he could make a napoleon movie right now that's such a broad category though like historic dramas like you could be talking about like pride and prejudice or something like that well the, the letter continues First thing, love the podcast. It's refreshing to hear about hidden gems in cinema, and I especially appreciated the episode on El Santo. As a first-generation Mexican-American, it's always a treat to see both of my cultures peek through in my interest. I'm curious to hear your input on one of my favorite film directors, Joe Wright. He primarily works in taking literary works and adapting them to the screen. Of course, my favorite... Films of his are Pride and Prejudice and Anna Karenina. You can tell he has his favorites to work with, Cough, Kira Knightley, Cough. A year ago, after talking a big game over what a fantastic director Wright is to my husband, my sibling and I got a copy of Cyrano for all of us to watch. Cue me trying to make excuses and promising my (laughs) husband that Joe's films aren't always like this. I showed my husband Anna Karenina and he couldn't help asking, what happened? While I know that Wright specializes in beautiful shots and imagery, he's not a writer and sometimes his writing leaves more to be desired what are your thoughts joe wright that's an interesting director who i feel was like very big in for like a small period of time well i'll tell you any we all love hannah yeah (laughs) hannah i would have loved it if someone else made it Um, (laughs) no 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 no. I, i i completely forget hannah but you love pan Remember yeah, his yeah. Peter Pan adaptation that had like Nirvana songs in it that they would sing? We all have biases mm-hmm. and maybe they're not fair. I will say that when when Joe Wright, I almost said Edgar, when Joe Wright has a movie out like that Winston Churchill movie, I oh, say, no, thank Winston you. Winston Churchill movie from the director of Atonement. Pass. <laughs> That's you didn't what like I Atonement say. when it came out? Well, I saw it. Mm-hmm. I can't really remember it that well, to be honest. What about Anna Karenina? You know, I like that gimmick in Anna Karenina where it's the stage. Yeah, Yeah, I thought that was kind of neat. I remember seeing Hannah and that was it. We all had Joe Wright Madness back then and watching and going, that's it. 
That's all he's got? Well, I was kind of, when Hannah came out, I remember thinking like, oh, the guy who made Atonement, like, wants he's making to, an action he movie. wants to kick ass, mm-hmm. you know? And then it was just like, yeah, you know, I wish I wish an action director made this. But yeah. I mean, he's a guy that, is he People still love working? Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Which I saw, I saw in a dorm room 15 years ago <laughs> and, and don't remember. You know what? Joe Wright episode. Joe Wright, let's do it, actually. <laughs> we should do a Joe Wright episode. I'd oh, love God. to. All right. Well, you got to watch Pan. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it. Pride and Prejudice, and then we'll watch one of his other... Like, late period ones? Oh, God. oh God. He did The Soloist. Do you remember that with Robert Downey Jr. and oh. Jamie Foxx? Oh, oh that probably opened Tiff, right? If it the, did... You're thinking of The Judge. <laughs> yeah, but The Soloist is definitely an opening Tiff-style movie. Let's do... Okay, here's an episode. Post-Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. Prestige Vanity Projects. <laughs> I was also thinking we do a whole episode on Peter Pan adaptations. Oh, woof. <laughs> There's so many of them. I can't believe. Oh, well, it might be fun to watch Hook again. Yeah, and don't forget, is it Wendy from the director? Remember the director of oh, yeah. Beasts of Southern Wild? He had a Peter Pan adaptation. That's right. There's one every couple of years that's like, what if Peter Pan was... Dark. Something. Yeah, dark. Yeah, yeah or yeah. something like that. And there's a, another Disney Peter Pan live action adaptation coming down the pike as well. Oh, boy. Well, Joe Wright, a lot to think about there. I do want to do an episode though it's like let's let's be fair let me check my biases and our next letter is from peter and he goes hey justin and will first of all congratulations to justin on his wedding thank you thank you both so much for expanding my cinematic horizons i have a newfound curiosity and appreciation for poverty row the national film board of canada and classic martial arts films regarding the martial arts films i was wondering if you could recommend a couple of titles that are free of animal cruelty and sexual violence i know that not all classic martial arts films contain those things and i certainly don't judge anyone who can overlook those things in a movie i'm just at a time in my life right now where i try to avoid that kind of stuff for example my current favorite of the genre is duel to the death any more like that thanks for everything you do peter you know that's actually a good question i have to say because uh, there's a lot of those yeah. movies have that you like what's throw the throw on the iron-fisted monk it, and I, you're like that's the, that was going to be my go-to ah, samuel hung's directorial effort i can't like wait for the ten, comedy kung fu. 10 minutes of rape in Ugh, that movie yeah oh yeah, my yeah. god and animal cruelty i mean folks it's real yeah. if an animal looks like it's killed in a hong kong movie as batman bay logan said yeah they probably killed it yeah but I would also say both things are probably a minority of mm. kung fu movies, and it would be nice if there was a warning on the box to tell you, I maybe not. Don't watch a calamity of snakes. No, or but like even something like Eastern Condors has yeah. a scene where a character rips apart a real snake in it. So it's like <laughs> ah. And now, and now we're getting at the point where okay, I have to recommend one. And I'm going to forget yeah, if these That's movies, what's going to happen. Yeah. But like, I would think Drunken Master, I've seen enough times to know it doesn't have any sexual assault. Or but I would say, it. do not watch Snake in the Eagle Shadow, because isn't there like the animals fighting with each other in that movie? I can't remember. Yeah, I believe there is. So it's like, I, I think Drunken Master is safe. Do you go through periods in your life where you're like, I don't want to see any of that kind of stuff? I, Not yet. No, I would say I, I never want to see no, animal, animal cruelty in no, a movie. Yeah. And like a movie like, for example, Cannibal Holocaust. The first time I saw it, I, I watched it mm-hmm. through because because I was like, well, if you're going to do this, you might as well yeah. like this watch is, all of this it. is what we've signed up for. And I've watched it since in the animal cruelty free version. Mm. It's yeah, it's something I really don't like. As for sexual assault, boy, there's a it's, yeah, it's a, there's a lot in martial arts cinema, especially from Hong Kong. Yeah, I one question I have to ask you: Are you have you reached a level? Due to your current life, where you go look like does the dog die dot com. I've never looked in advance, but I will say that I whenever the dog's in danger, I do feel it more. <laughs> wow. Yes, I do feel it more. And I, I do more think I hope the dog doesn't die. Mm-hmm. The recent film Anatomy of a Fall definitely sent me on a roller coaster ride in that regard. Oh, is there a dog? I haven't seen it. I'm not going to spoil anything. Mm-hmm. There is a dog who at one point there is some danger. Does he solve the mystery of the film? I assume I'm not. I'm not telling you anything. All right, all right. I'll have to check it out for myself. And also check out howthedogdied.com just in case. Anyway, Enter the Dragon, I don't think has any animal cruelty, <laughs> does it? It definitely has sexual assault, though, because that Angela Mao scene. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Holy shit. What <laughs> yep. are we going to. It's almost like uh, popular entertainment sings like sexual assault is just accepted as a genre trope for many, many years. And only now are people like, huh, maybe we could do something different than this and not normalize it in these movies. Well, then I only have one answer for you for sure. Battle Creek Brawl. Mm. 
Hmm. Is there any <laughs> sexual assault in there? Let me think about it for a second. I mean, you know what? I would go to Patreon and join our Discord. I feel like people yeah. more knowledgeable in this moment than us could answer. Because like, unless I just watch the movie... I, I don't know if I can answer those questions. Yeah. What I would say is like, if you like Duel to the Death, watch High Flying Fantasy Wusha. The chances of animals being, but then there's maybe there's sexual assault in them. What about something like yeah. Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain? Is there any in there? Some... I feel like there's some bird stuff where they get like hit by arrows in it. My God. Yeah. Okay. Or, or maybe like a Chinese ghost story. Any title I say, I feel like someone listening is like, ah, well, you forgot this. And I would hate like... to lead. I would hate to lead someone on the path where they had to see something like that when they've specifically asked mm. not to. So yeah, if you're on the Patreon, hopefully join and see if there is because yeah. Help us though, out, folks. So the letter writer also mentions that they're a fan of weird movie memorabilia. Or do you ever collect like weird, not necessarily just like posters, but like you're looking for, I don't know, like a like a hat that had the movie's name on it to advertise it when it came out. Man, so a friend of mine who is possibly listening has a hat for the Woody Allen movie Anything Else. <laughs> Yeah. It's got the anything else yeah. logo in it, which if you've seen the poster, it's I think I can guess which friend that is. Yeah. No, I don't think you know him. Oh, have you said his name to me before? I don't think I have. <laughs> Say it off mic. Okay, okay. And I saw that hat and I was like, fuck, I want an anything else hat. And I went on eBay and the only when I searched Woody Allen hat, I only found ants, which is not <laughs> Not That's a pretty same. funny thing to wear, though. Uh, an ant's hat? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should get that. Yeah. One time, I, I didn't bid on a crew jacket from the movie Cracking Up by Jerry Lewis. Whoa, under, it, was, under, it was on sale? Under the title Smorgasbord. It was mm -hmm. probably like $200, and I was but a poor student. Yeah. And now... It haunts you to this day. Probably go for more than 200 now no thanks to the jerry lewis fever the important cinema club has created yeah would you wear it if you had it or just put it up on the wall <laughs> i might not wear it <laughs> outside it had the original title smorgasbord to be clear mm. but you don't want to confuse people when you go out into the public okay here's some weird memorabilia i have thanks to the estate sale of various heirs to the three stooges I have a piece of Mo one of Mo Howard's suits. Yeah. And I have a piece of Curly Joe Dorita's shorts. <laughs> yes, that's I, right. I got it for 30 bucks and it <laughs> says on it, authentic piece of Curly Joe Dorita's shorts. Mm -hmm. And I have it on my shelf and I like to look at it. The stationery? Yeah. Curly Joe. I, I have a piece of Curly Joe stationery that has a little caricature of him in the upper left corner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big memorabilia hunter. I remember listening. There was a podcast where they talked about it and like hunting down. They're like, oh, we need an original reproduction of Conan Sword. And all I can think when I hear all this stuff is. I got no room for this exactly. stuff. <laughs> like, come on. Exactly. And like, I don't care if it's original or screen use or anything like that. I mean, I just bought, you know, the thing that I like is a Jackie Chan figure from Dragon Lord. He's right behind Will right there. He's, He's a beautiful drink, man. Drinking from a little pot. Like when I saw that a BMV had it, I was like, I need this guy. Especially, you know, you can bend him in weird shapes. That, that's what yeah, I want. Yeah, you can fuck him. You <laughs> yeah, can if you want to. put him in your ass. You can do yep. whatever you want. No, I, at BMV, I often get the Godzilla action figures. Mm. I've got, you know, a little Megalon, a little guy. Again, a little, I got Hetera guarding the coin the coin jar for the laundry. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially Godzilla stuff. There's Godzilla fever now. Like that store that opened, they have new toys all the oh, time. So good. And what I have to say, though, is those Godzilla toys, his tail's too long. Yeah. <laughs> Any Godzilla I get, the tail is so Again, long. where do you put them? Yeah. Hard to put them on a shelf. Yeah, I can't. The one shelf I have for action figures, it's always shaking and falling over. It's like, you just don't have room for this. All Godzillas are beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. And if he's got a long tail, that's... Yeah, that's just the way he was him. built. Yeah. Well, thank you again for the letter. And what are we doing on this week's Patreon, Will? Well, it's Joe D'Amato corner again. People demand it. They're like, we want more D'Amato. We want more D'Amato. Speaking of animal cruelty, after we're recording this episode, we are going to a rare theatrical 35 millimeter screening of a Joe D'Amato movie. That's right. We're going to see Emmanuel in Bangkok. But, 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 but. In an academic setting. That's right. There will be the Italian Studies Department will be doing a little talk, mm -hmm. and we're going to see a 35 millimeter print, probably very red. Blood red, I'd <laughs> yes. imagine. Yeah. Of Emmanuel Mankuk, which it's so funny because we'll watch this movie, I think, a couple weeks ago. No, I, I watched oh, okay. This was not in my Emmanuel, but I have seen it within the last five years. <laughs> okay. And do I remember it well? No. No. It was, yeah, you know what? It was a long time. It was back in your star rating days. And I don't know if you looked at your review, you did not get it a very high star rate. What I give it? Like three? Three, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I can't wait to watch it with an audience. I say after tonight, minimum four. What is the last Sinsu screening that I saw? I, I Was it maybe Caligula when they showed oh, that? Oh, God, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was off a DVD, though. It wasn't like a print or anything. Have I don't you been think. to Cult Night lately? Mm-mm. 
Because Cult Night used to be an institution at the Cinema City. Well, yeah, they would play like Super Fuzz and Cue the Wing Serpent on On 35 millimeter film. Yeah, Dolomite was another one. I think maybe the last Sinsu one I went to was before the pandemic, I went to Cult Night and it was a double feature of... Bend it like Beckham. Yeah, they, they, would, they would do that a lot. No, it was like coffee with Pam Greer and then, I swear to God, Bays Moi. Oh, Bays Moi. Which, That's very rough. Which I have to say, after that screening, I really became all four trigger warnings mm. because I feel like some people in the audience- We're not, not ready for it. We're not ready for it. And it's like, holy shit. I mean, <laughs> that, that has some really upsetting stuff in it. Sorry, I'm just thinking of the- Coming after coffee, like a wacky black exploitation movie. I saw like a, a screening of coffee. Skull Island and the guy before the screening is like the Oscars that just happened I don't remember who said it but he's like we got to dig up these stories and put them on screen and now enjoy Kong Skull Island that's so funny I was like what yeah up from the old basket of IP (laughs) yep you remember when we were like young and they would do those like preview screenings of movies at Sensu. And I remember one time, like they showed some bad movie and then the next day, like Eastern Yoon was introducing a screening and he was like, Hey, how about that movie yesterday? Wasn't it garbage? (laughs) That's classic Eastern (laughs) Yoon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're too old now. Maybe they do cool stuff like that. We're just not in the know. Yeah. Well, so that's what we're doing for Patreon this week. And you can join at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. So what are we doing next week? Oh, you know what? I'm asking Will when, when you have the director's title and the director's name in front of you so we have not done many russian filmmakers i don't think for this podcast right we haven't even done eisenstein we only did yeah eisenstein too mainstream mainstream but you know what we'll we'll do him if we need that that eisenstein boost yeah (laughs) when people are like oh another podcast about eisenstein well we're going to be doing a russian filmmaker next week and it's mostly just an excuse for me to finally watch the criterion blu-ray of war and peace that i have Oh, yeah. Now, this is a movie that was a huge deal when it came. Like, they screened it a lot. And people that saw it were like, wow, this movie is great. I remember hearing on a podcast that someone said that Adam Rifkin went and saw it. Yes, Adam Rifkin, the director of The Invisible Maniac. And then he was like, all right, I'm going to go see it again tomorrow, too, because I love it so much. And this is the movie. I don't know a lot about this movie, but wasn't it like a big anniversary movie? And Mm -hmm. the Soviets were basically like have all the money to oh, make this all movie. the money people were tweeting about recently that like remember when they used to have armies on film and you just get a bunch of people and this director is famous for doing that including his film waterloo which has a drunk orson wells in it and gigantic crowd scenes the director's name is and i'm gonna butcher butcher this Sergei bondachuk bondachuk <laughs> He's, he's famous. I've, I, I, I'm, aware, I'm familiar with him, but saying the name can but be hard. But you know how to say his name. Saying the name can be hard. Did we look before we started recording if we could find someone and, saying his and, name? And we're saying this because I can hear you fuckers <laughs> listening to this being like, Bondachuk, Bondachuk, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, listen, guys. We're not saying this name in casual conversation. No. And neither are you. Hey, so. we tried to do the work. I watched 30 seconds of a... <laughs> it was, the video a, was eulogy for Sergei Bondarchuk. Yep. And it was 30 seconds in. Well, it started, I said, I don't think it's him because they're all teenagers, but maybe they love the director. Just a funeral for a, a kid named Sergei Yeah, Bondarchuk. who died in a car accident. It yeah. was very sad. So we've, we're already doing the research. Yeah, we're doing the we're research. We're already experts. They didn't say his name. Yeah. They, maybe they did, but I I was like, yeah, I feel dirty watching. They didn't even say his name. (laughs) So that's what we're doing next week. Everybody watch War and Peace, because I have a feeling the episode may just be us going. Wow. How can we describe the sights that we see on screen? We'll find a way. We're both going to read War and Peace. Pick your favorite translation, Will. Okay, I'll do... You know what I'll do with the book on tape, and I'll do it at, like, five times speed. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll stay up all night. Mm, Perfect. That's how you do this kind of stuff. So, until then, my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank our new patrons, who include Anderson, Grace, Oakley Flynn, Hayden Cook, Some Sketchy Guy, Frank Stock, Brad Simon, Calvin Vaughn, Emmanuel Ordonez Angulo, Anthropophagus, Alex Ethan Skelly, Peter Salamone, Alexander John Cunningham, Griffin Sims, Tales of Tales, Lars Mulvick, and Matthew Giafino. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without you. The people don't want us to see new Looney Tunes material. Oh, man. So Coyote versus Acme. Mm. This is one of the big entertainment stories this week, coming hot off the end of the SAG strike. You'll recall that 
maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, Big Dick David Zaslav came in. Our favorite CEO. Wait, is he CEO? What is he? I, it's Who not, cares? not my yeah. job. He's he's the head honcho there. Mm. And and he said we need to get some tax write-off money. Warner Brothers is in dire financial trouble. Here's the thing. Every company is in dire financial trouble. If you look at the numbers. Right. And he said, you know, you know, one way we can get some financial, some quick financial relief is if we put two almost completed movies on the shelf, Batgirl and the Scooby-Doo sequel. Mm -hmm. What? I'm not going to be able to see Scoob 2, a Halloween haunt. I mean, you'll recall also that part of the... Part of the publicity around this was they made the big case that, well, this Batgirl movie, it's not releasable. This would damage the DC brand. We, we were actually doing, in addition to collecting some money, we're doing a, a service to not make you watch this. How could meanwhile, it be worse than The Flash? Meanwhile, wait till you see the greatest superhero movie of all time. <laughs> James Gunn said so. He yeah. said so. The Flash. The greatest of the all best. time. The Flash. Let's keep pouring money into that. And I think there was a conception that like, well, they're not. They're not going to do this more than once. And so it's not like they're going to give permission to other studios to also do this like Disney, where, you know, the Willow TV show just disappeared off their service. Right. For a tax write off. But now this week or this past week, they took the Coyote versus Acme movie, which I think sounds fun. And who knows? I mean, nobody's seen it, but they, they claim that it tested well. Mm -hmm. But it, the premise of the movie is Wiley Coyote gets so fed up with the Acme Corporation that he takes them to court. And it's like a legal comedy. Yeah. With Will Forte, a very funny man. Yeah. John Cena. Yeah. John Cena is the villain of it. James Gunn, the head of Warner Brothers Marvel Division, wrote this movie. And produced it. Yeah. So like... If it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. Why would you ever want to work with Warner Brothers? So this is baffling. And now today, as we record this, there's an article in The Hollywood Reporter suggesting that Warner might be doing a bit of an about face because a number of high profile filmmakers instantly canceled meetings with Warner. I mean, I would. Yeah. And and as what you know, the messaging coming out of the team who made this movie is like, what what's the problem? It's on budget. It's on time. It's completed. It's scored. Special effects the are done. done. Yeah, it's tested in the '90s, and you're you're it costs seventy two million dollars, and you're shelving it for a thirty million dollar tax write off, which is like, I mean, you would have to be an idiot to not be able to make thirty million dollars at least on this movie at the box I office. I think I, I want to take a step back and let's just like go through the thinking or try to of how you reach this point of going. This is the movie that we're going to abandon. Well, I think there are some there are certain other like Looney Tunes things that they're developing. Yes. So that they have a theatrical animated film. Right. And there's also they're they're talking about like a live action Bugs Bunny, like a, <laughs> a live action animation like Roger Rabbit thing that they're in development on. And also this Coyote versus Acme movie was originally conceived as streaming content as well. Oh, was it? Yes, it's one of those movies. Now, the streaming movies look to me indistinguishable from theatrical movies, so that's no excuse. But you, they were also like, yeah, it doesn't fit in with our strategy anymore, so and it does seem as short-sighted as David Zaslav or the people around him being like well, hey, I mean, we can make a certain amount of money this way or in the short term because we punted Dune 2 to next year. Our fourth quarter earnings depended on Dune 2 coming out. We have no fourth quarter earnings anymore. We got to get $30 million somewhere. Well, let's just throw this one out. And this is following David Zavlov going, we have a lot of kids content. We don't really know how to promote it. I think he did it on a call, like a shareholders call or something like that. And then he turns around and he's like, cancel this movie. I do think they looked at the fact that they made a hundred Looney Tunes cartoons and that no one was talking about it. Mm -hmm. And my argument would be, how the hell are we supposed to watch these cartoons? Well, you, you, no one knows they exist. Those, were, those cartoons were not promoted. No, not at all. You know, they were just indifferently dumped onto streaming. And and this movie, like you can't watch them in Canada if you yeah. want to watch them. But yeah, I mean, just baffling that like there, there seemed to be no thought about, okay, what are the, what are the unexpected consequences? I mean, they're not even unexpected. What are the consequences of this where you see like, yeah, filmmakers, what filmmaker, what serious filmmaker would want to bring a movie to Warner brothers now is probably their thinking was this won't come out. No one cares about a movie like this. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think they thought that. And they and, also thought, oh, we got away with it with Batgirl. It's fine. Yeah. And if Batgirl, like that's such a big, you know, brouhaha, we got away with and it. And the guy who directs, who's directing the Coyote versus Acme movie. Well, he's got, he's got another like movie with the studio now that he's working on anyway. So he's not. <laughs> does he have Warner Brothers? Well, he, yeah, he does have a movie in development there. That's bananas. So they were probably I'd be like, like, get me out of here. Well, I, I would too. And I'm sure he would probably want out. But it's mm -hmm. like you read about, you read about like the human stories of this where mm -hmm. it's like he 
relocated to London for 18 months to mm. make this movie, you know, like away from his family because they went to London because of tax rebates and stuff over but, there. But Will, you know, they're paid for the work that they do. Does it matter if the movie comes? Yeah, it goddamn does. Well, That's it, why they're making movies. It, it absolutely does. And I feel this way about like every movie. I feel yeah. like good or bad. It's like the end of the day, you know, people like people do have deserve to have their time respected. Yeah. The Flash deserves to come out. Well, actually, the Flash does deserve to come out. Yeah, it does. It doesn't deserve anything else but it deserves to come out because it's like yeah a huge number of people put literally years of their life into it you know it, it's like if it doesn't come out what does that what does that do like the their resume now has like oh yeah i spent five years making a movie that didn't come out yeah this is the thing is that when you make like a studio film like that there is not that fear of oh boy maybe it won't come out they deal with that probably for years before they get a green light to go make the movie people are making empty promises and saying oh yeah you know you're good to go in probably a well, month and then nothing about, happens think about the actress who played batgirl yeah. it's like what a horrible thing to do to somebody at that point in their career where it's like you've invested so much and you're going to be batgirl and probably like whole other deals are continuing on you being Batgirl in a movie because that's a big movie that's a big role and then it's like oh I just wasted a year at mm-hmm. like the height of my potential yeah what an awful thing it sucks and it, it, it sucks in a way that it feels more like a performative act as a studio doing it to what ends I don't know it's like it's it's sociopathic and it's also just you know looking at movies as nothing other than just like numbers on a balance sheet yeah which you know David Zasloff if he thought he could save 20 million dollars by burning the negative of Casablanca, he probably he would, would do it. You know, well, he's from Discovery, right? Which yeah. they literally just pump They're out a garbage. Shit factory, yeah. yeah, so that's how he views all this stuff, and that kind of reaction probably genuinely shocks the Warner Brothers people because they're like, "Oh, well, we've done that. Maybe we've shot a season of a TV show and we haven't put it out. No one cared." Yeah, and it's like, ah, yeah. I mean, that's also bad, but you don't understand the way that these kind of movie things work. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I were, I don't know, a shareholder in Warner Brothers, maybe I would want to replace David Zaslav with someone. Well, I else. would think so because I mean, think of the reputation damage this does think of the damage this does with to relations with artists yeah know? i think that they would have to get rid of david zaslov and get somebody else in and the first thing out of their mouths would have to be like we're not going to cancel any movies yeah we're not going to do any more tax write offs and in fact here's batgirl we're yeah. releasing batgirl they that, should just like that's 100 percent that. going to happen when a new studio head comes in yeah and you know we'll just deal with it and it will help because at the end of the day we always talk about this like stocks that value is only based on people trusting the product Mm -hmm. and that's what raises or causes people to sell doing this kind of shit it just hurts the product and maybe you know it's david zaslov at the end of the day he's probably going to get like a 10 million dollar bonus leaving the company in the crater or selling it to like apple or something like that i'm resigned to the fact that he'll be monstrously wealthy to the end oh yeah yeah, yeah, of course yeah yeah. and that you know warner Bros. is going to be sold off probably to somebody else and you know is that a yeah an antitrust case absolutely Uh, yeah well that's a whole other matter yeah 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 yeah. there's a lot that's bad in how the world is run (laughs) as you might have heard whoa all right well will's gonna have to teach me some of this off mic (laughs) 